Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening. And today I'm speaking with uh, Helen Pluckrose. Helen is the commissioning editor for Aereo Magazine. She also has a background in medieval and Renaissance literature, focusing mainly on how the, the religious aspect of it changed, I believe. Yeah, women's religious writing. And also Helen was part of the Grievance Studies papers. People call them hoaxes. I don't like calling them hoaxes. So if you want to give a bit of your background, like how you got started in this and what led you to the Grievance Studies, because going from medieval literature to reading Robin DiAngelo seems a little weird. In in some ways it is, in other ways it's it's a seamless transition. I mean, uh, Jim and, and Peter and I we, um, we we came from that new atheist moment. So we were looking at religious narratives. We were looking at um, you know how people decided what was true, how ethics are formed, and so we we criticised religion on the grounds of making um, truth claims that weren't substantiated and of having illiberal and inconsistent ethics. So um, when the whole sort of social justice issue really started gaining steam, we were already in our element because this this is a variation on on the same thing. We've got more um, truth claims and um, sort of strange ideas of of knowledge. How do we know what's true? And um, there's that and there's the liberal ethics so we in different ways um have spent some time criticizing this straightforwardly peter obviously is right in the middle of it at portland state university i was trying to feminist and being told i was doing it wrong and um jim is uh, studied um the psychology of religion and it transferred quite well so yeah we 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 argued about it um straightforwardly for for quite a few years before uh, obviously, the the guys decided um, to try one, uh, and it was a hoax. That one, mm. the first one, they they wanted to they wanted to see if they could get nonsense out there, and they could, but it it wasn't that satisfactory because the journal itself, well, it, it was peer reviewed and it was, you know, it was used, but it wasn't it wasn't great. So people um, said, well, how do we know that the problem is actually the content and not, um, predatory journals? And so they decided to do something a bit more, uh, in depth with, with more journals, with, um, sort of more central to the, the subjects. And, and they, they brought me in on, on that and, and it was great. <laughs> okay. Something you mentioned there, like the, uh, so you were talking about like going from, uh, you know, like making the truth claims and, like how this is almost like faith-like. So, you know, I think you know a bit of my background. I was out of the country from about two, th- or I was out, I was in war zones and disaster areas from about 2002. I came back to Canada in 2014. So I missed social media. Like the only social media I used was to connect with friends because I was in the middle of nowhere. I didn't know what was going on. I had no idea. I come back in 2014. Everything's gone insane. So was there like a slow buildup to 2014? Were there the little warning signs that were coming up or did this just take everyone by surprise? It's well, okay. So the, 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 the manifestations of, of what we're seeing right now, they began at around 1990. So this, um, the whole sort of turning postmodern ideas into activism when we're worried about um, language and the power of language and how knowledge is created and um, and it's just a, yeah, power knowledge um, discourses that that really became a part of activism at about in that, the nineties, but at around. 2010 and, and growing rapidly in steam since then, we came into a kind of new phase where it's really become. Um, much clearer, much simpler, very dogmatic. So, so yeah, I, I think at around 2010, 2011, we saw this this kind of shift. We went from things like white privilege, which people could acknowledge and um, and address, to white complicity, where you know that these everyone was just embedded so deeply in these systems of power and privilege, you couldn't do anything um, about it. You just had to keep deconstructing it, and it really took off since since then. And it's I I think it it yeah it, it gained particular steam around 2015, and it's been escalating ever since. Which I, I think is is in one way it's a good thing because it's a huge overreach. The excesses and silliness of it are much much clearer to more people. And so we can actually get at it now, but <coughs> but 
but no, I, I I think you're absolutely right to to say that yeah, this this really hit us quite suddenly. For most people who haven't been watching how the the literature's been evolving, the the impact has, has felt quite suddenly within sort of the last five to eight years, I think. Okay, well, you mentioned the nineties. Um, I remember the like the, that that political correctness movement starting in about. 87 or so and then picking up speed and I was in university back in you know, the late 80s early 90s and I would see some of it and I would I would like I was working part-time while I was in university told my co-workers when they started coming up with stuff like we don't want to use waiter or waitress we want to use waitron because it's gender neutral and I'm like that's that's a sterile clean word that has no meaning and the first thing I thought then was uh, Orwell's Newspeak. I'm like, this is language without meaning. It's, it's it's just nonsense. But then when I got back in 2014 and I started seeing this stuff, like it was a completely different. It, it was a different, you know, like the animal had evolved, right? It was it wasn't quite the same. And I'm looking at what seems to me to be blasphemy laws. I'm like, you can't say this. If you say this, we're going to kick you out. You know, uh, and you kept seeing it over and over and over again. Just Yes, sometimes people said something horrible and whatever that's, but you know, for like the most innocuous things, like you went against our code, our creed, we're going to kick you out. And so like, like to me, like right away, it just seemed like, okay, this is a blasphemy. Like someone who had, you know, been in a faith tradition, wasn't anymore. And I could kind of see the faith-like aspect of it. And I mean, until that paper that Jim wrote, I couldn't quite express myself so maybe because you know that's my own limitation but like that put you know like what he did what he wrote in that paper like really struck a chord and they also like the one where the two of you wrote i believe the you know attack on modernism because it was just like this idea that anything that's new is bad and we have to go get away from the modern just seemed bizarre to me mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, it, it is, it's quite difficult to get your, your head around, but the ideas themselves aren't really that complicated. It's a very uh, simplistic way, but um, a good way to, to try and see what is happening is if we look at the pre-modern, the modern and the post-modern. So when you're talking about blasphemy laws, this is um, essentially sort of pre-modern, uh, what, what the West would, would call pre-modern. So in that, there's the idea, and obviously we still see that within um, faiths uh, right now, including um, sort of certain areas of Islam and um, the Jehovah's Witnesses, where you've got this very sort of, um, uh, you know, d dogmatic thing. You you must do all of these things, or we will shun you, or or, or we will hurt you. So we've got there this idea of language as um, a possible contaminant. It's very important that people say. The right things when there's a religious aspect you could corrupt other people you could lead them away from god you could damn them so it's there's this intense focus on language and then as we've gone into the the modern era sort of gradually the idea that actually language can be used to criticize and evaluate ideas has has arisen so you have the marketplace of ideas you have battles of ideas anybody can criticize anything and the ideas themselves stand on their own merits and the ones that um, survive questioning win out. And now we're looking at the postmodern idea of language. And this is quite counterintuitive. It's got um, a fair bit in common with the pre-modern, but it's not quite the same because what the understanding. Yeah, so. Um, so it, it's it's the way that um, we're understanding knowledge and power. So we know what is what is true by the way we talk about things. So for the postmodernists, particularly science became a, um, a truth uh, bringer. So we've got the idea that um, science is true, then everybody talks about it on every level of society. So it's not like the Marxists who believe that power just pressed down. For the postmodernists, power is circulated in the way we talk about things. So again, it's very, very important how we are talking about things. And we don't always know what ideas we're spreading. So we have to look at speech. We have to, because there's an assumption that there's power imbalances in it, we have to look at it and find it. Whether it's a man talking to a woman, then we're looking for the power imbalance. If it's um, a black person talking to a white person, we're looking for a power imbalance. 
it must be there. We need to find it. And then we need to analyse speech and we need to intervene on how people are speaking. So there is this idea, like the pre-modern one, that language can be a contaminant. It can um, infect people but it's a very sort of secular worldly one we want to make this world a better place and the way to do that is by changing the way people think and the way they talk yeah okay i started reading some of this stuff and i read okay the first thing okay i've read papers and i've seen uh videos but i never actually started reading the books until recently and the first one i Mm -hmm. read was white fragility Mm -hmm. and i was so insulted like, I know you've done some work with Mike, and I know he put some stuff out with that. But, like, they're basically telling me I am too stupid, and I'm a child, and without their help, I won't understand the threats to myself, and I need them to take care of me. And that is such a condescending, insulting way of treating me. And maybe I read it wrong. I don't know. But that's the way it came off to me. Like, I need someone to protect me because, because of the color of my skin. I am too stupid to understand what's going on and being done to me. And I just, I, I don't want to be spoken to that way. If, if you were with Robert D'Angelo right at this moment and you said this to her, do you know what she would say? Oh, I don't know that I've, I've been consumed by whiteness or whatever, or I, I know, something along yeah, I those lines. Some of them would, but she wouldn't. What she would do would be just to apologize, ask you to explain again how she has, um, um, offended because she knows that she will because she's white and so she is reliant on people who are not white to um, tell her although she don't want to um, exploit them or demand their labor so it would be a really really fruitless conversation because we, we, we you just it can't even you you are look, still coming from this idea of the individual the individual who can evaluate ideas who can make his or her own way in the world um, it, it's a it's a really powerful sort of liberal modern thing, but D'Angelo, um, Bailey, Applebaum, that that that's the the three I'm thinking of in this area. They don't think like that. They they really the the whole idea. That's one thing that that really got lost with postmodernism is the idea of an individual who can evaluate things and make arguments. You you are a collection of identities and positions in society. So if for you to come out and say um, anything that seems to go against this, yes, you'll get a lot of activists who will say that you're feeding into white supremacist narratives. Some of them may be sympathetic to your um, indoctrination. Others might be cynical and say that you're doing this in order to make your own life a bit better at the expense of other oppressed people. But really underlying all of this is is the utter conviction that that truth is constructed in language, that it's all about power, and that we just have to keep finding it and pulling apart. Yeah, but I mean, probably they're, they're probably gonna hate it, but it's it's like string theory for 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 you know humanities. Like, you're, you're going to come up with all these lovely theories that you're not going to be able to test. And they're not lovely, by the way. Even in theory, they sound awful. But, you know, that you're not going to be able to test. But, oh, we have to get down to the underlying, you know, like a physics, string theory. We're going to have to get down to the underlying principles and the matters that make everything up, right? But I love language. I think language is important. But to me, what these people are doing is destroying language. Like, they're not able to speak properly. You're not able to write properly. Again, you're giving they're they're giving us these words that have no meaning and it just seem cold and sterile and there's no joy in them. Like, you know, like I I can read a good book and I can take some joy out of it. Or I can listen to someone who's eloquent speak and I can take some joy out of that. Like watching Robin D'Angelo videos, I want to bash my head in with this with a hammer for Christ's sakes. Mm. It, it it is very zealous. It it's very, very earnest and sincere and um really quite quite horrible i mean a lot of people um disagree with me when i when i say that this is a sincere intellectual well-meaning shift they they see nasty um activists and think it's a, a power play and i'm sure in some cases it is but for a lot of the leading voices in here i i believe particularly robin d'angelo is absolutely sincere but she is like a um, like a religious zealot, she has realised what the sins of the world are. She knows what we need to do 
to address them. She's telling white people. She always um, says that she's speaking to white people because she's not going to presume to tell people of colour um, anything. So it's it's ugly and it is sterile and it shuts things down. It can't be falsified. It cannot be engaged with apart from to agree with it. So, I mean, as I, I said before, this is this is good in, in one way because it means we really can get at those ideas now. If you look at the way Robin D'Angelo wrote and compare her to Jacques Derrida, we are seeing very different um, approaches or, or somebody like Homi Baba, you know, that we've got this really complicated um, theoretical language that you just can't get your hands on um, sort of in the early stages of postmodernism. As it's condensed, it's got simpler, it's got clearer, it's got more sure of itself. We have people writing very, very clearly like Robin D'Angelo. So we can argue with this now, but the bad side of that is that it's accessible to more and more people who are looking to be good people who are idealistic, often young, and they want to make the world a better place. In some parts, they'd go off to the world. In other, other, you know, they'd go, they'd go off to war or um, they'd, they'd become an evangelical Christian or they'd become a radical Marxist. Now, if you are a young person with radical tendencies who really wants to make the world a better place, you're going to buy into this um, sort of white fragility thing, that, thing that's going on. So it's... Um, it's both worrying because it can spread so easily and it's also encouraging because we can argue with it now. We can point out what it is. We can show it to more and more people. Yeah, okay. That's just, I mean, a lot of this stuff, like, so I was in university in the 90s, uh, you know, late 80s, early 90s. I read some some of this stuff because it was given to me in class. Like, I read, like, the, the book by Franz Fanon, The Wretched of the Earth. And I, was, and, and I was like, oh, my God, this is nuts. Like, who thinks this way? And I didn't know where it was coming from. Right. And now that this stuff is going on and I'm hearing more about it, I kind of see where that nonsense came from. Yeah. I mean, the Fanon, I, I, in many ways, I quite like Fanon because he's, you know, he, he was a pre postmodernist. He, he wasn't um, like a, a cultural constructivist, like the kind we see now. He was uh, much more about the, the psyche and he was, um, he accepted the idea of objective truth. So I think there was a lot of good that could be taken from Fanon, but there was also, yeah, a lot of. Um, a lot of the stuff that that comes down to implicit bias and digging it out of yourself and digging it out of other people uh, has has some roots in in Fanon more, more explicitly in um, Foucault and the the kind of unholy uh, matrimony of, of Fanon and Foucault via post-colonial theories is is why we we see quite a lot of the nonsense we we see now. But yet yeah, in the late eighties, you would have seen a shift that was just starting to happen so we had the really sort of um, aimless deconstruction of the early postmodernists starting to give way to a lot of different disciplines that wanted to reconstruct so that the first lot just wanted to deconstruct it take it apart by the late 80s early 90s people were coming forwards with ways to dismantle and reconstruct so we have Judith Butler and um and uh, Kimberly Crenshaw particularly saying right now now we've got to that they were more hopeful that something could be done to make the world better yeah and okay make the world better so I've been overseas then when I got back to Canada I went up to northern Canada and I was living in small remote Inuit communities and there's plenty of problems up there so but majority of the people who work up there are either fresh out of university or they're at the tail end of their career because it's either get some experience or you know it's a nice, quiet place, finish off the last few years of your career and then go retire. Very few people in the middle of their career go up there for any length of time because it's middle of nowhere, it's brutal, it's harsh. You know, These people coming out of university, like, you know, you're, you're a small community, you know everyone, you're talking to them. And it was just that, like, okay, fresh out of university, I was all, I'm going to change the world, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to do this and that. Great, passionate young people. But it's all about this, like, the Inuit are an incredibly resilient people. You can't live up in the middle of, you know, above the trees where it's frozen eight months of the year, if not more, and you got to scavenge for everything. I mean, you can't, you cannot not be resilient and live up there. Like, if you're, if you're weak, you're not going to live up there, you're not going to survive. But everything that's being told to them that I can see when I was up there is, you are the victim. 
you are a victim. It's none of it is your fault. It's all being done to you. And there's plenty of stuff that was done to them. Don't, you know, like I will not defend any, anything, anything bad that was done to them, but these people are already resilient. Why aren't you working with the resilience that show them how to get over all this stuff instead of just continuously telling them that they're weak and that they need help and that they can't do anything without that help. And none of it's their fault. And it's like, I guess it, it's, it's treating people like children and babies, and I, I, I don't want to be treated that way, and I, I don't know what, again, maybe it's the individualism thing, I don't know, but I refuse to be treated like a child. Yeah, I, I, I think one um, a book that, that's particularly good for this, I don't know if you've read uh, Campbell and Manning's um, The Rise of Victimhood Culture. No. Uh, that, that, um, I think that one is the one that most explicitly addresses this um the, the, the issue you've raised a couple of times here of um, of infantilizing people, taking their agency away, seeing them as as people who, you know, things have been done to them. So they they look at um, three different types of culture. So you have um, the honor culture, in which uh, slights are responded to aggressively. It's all about being tough. It's all about being uh, resilient, not letting anybody put you down. But there's, you know, we have jewels and things, and there's, there's still quite an element of this in in some um, sort of Muslim cultures and in gang cultures. So there's this much sort of, you know, we have to have this proper face. And then we have had more recently it has been dominant um, the dignity culture in which people were expected not to resort to violence. So they're expected to ignore slights mostly, and they were expected to sort things out um, themselves and, and not be not see themselves as, as either to the victims or as um, slighted people who need to avenge a wrong. And then in the last few years, and they're tracing it at the same timeline as we are, but from a sociological perspective, we're seeing this rise of victimhood culture where, again, slights are taken very, very seriously, but the response isn't to um, try to deal with it yourself, possibly with violence, but to go to a third party. So there is status now in having victimhood, whereas there's status in having honour or there's status in having dignity, which is an individualistic, resilient thing, or there's status in being a victim. And so you will make a case to a wider group that you have been a victim of this and you will ask them to defend you. So and that's that's what we're we're seeing at the moment when we have this idea that we will tell um, women, we will tell religious and sexual minorities that that they are oppressed, that um that the life is is much harder for them, that the world is hostile to them, that there's a an idea that you're recognising these systems of imbalance and you're trying to redress them. But my concern, and because I, you know, I came from uh, feminism, my concern was mostly focused on how this was affecting young women. My my concern, I mean, obviously I'm concerned about how it's affecting uh, young men who don't seem to be able to do anything right at the moment. But also when we've um, when we've we've tried to empower women and we've come so far in empowering women to think that they can do anything and be anything and now there's this whole sort of narrative going on in which young women are told that the world is hostile to them that it will not um help them that that men need to be quiet so they can be heard it's that I have that same, I think, really angry kind of I am not going to be infantilized attitude that, that you've spoken about a couple of times. You know, and as there's the mother of a 15 year old girl, it's um, it's really it's really quite, quite frightening. I, I think this could set back female empowerment and participation. Yeah, I mean, to me, it seems like it set everything back. Like, okay, I've experienced racism in my life. I don't you know it's on my own, it doesn't exist. Uh, it's it's out there. It's, you know, it happens. I don't like. I don't want it to happen. Things were getting so much better, and then all of a sudden, it just we're. we're I don't know. I, I don't want to keep hammering on a, you know like beating on a dead horse or something. But it just they're taking things backwards. They're just things are getting better and better and better, and then all of a sudden, race relations seem to be going to crap. Like everything seems to be going yeah. crap. Like everything that was moving forward. I don't know if it's part of this breaking everything down and rebuilding it. And once you break it down, it's going to, you know, it's, it's going to be a mess, but like, you know, why reinvent the wheel? Like if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> well, that, that is, yeah, you, you are a, um, you, you're a, it, it's liberalism. What, what you're talking about here. And it, I think it's what most of us 
believe in you know that that is that that belief in um the individual and inconsistency so you I, I agree with you when you're seeing going backwards because what we had in things like critical race theory and um and post-colonial um theory there was this attitude that um the white the west white people were rational um ethical and um intelligent and then other uh, that east the east was constructed in opposition to this it justified things like imperialism it justified slavery because there is this division in which one um you know, white people have this whole sort of Western science, reason, liberalism thing going on, and everybody else is primitive and barbaric. So that was something that really had to be um, addressed. And I think that, um, you know, I'm, I'm speaking from the UK, the, there's a, an awful lot of post-colonial guilt um, here. And and this, I think, is a very good thing for our for our development, you know, the, the realisation that that things like slavery and, and colonialism have happened and that and that people thought they were okay that is something societies need to think about and to really sort of internalize into their their systems but we developed from this the liberal idea of that we treat everybody as an individual they're it's not about their skin color it's not about their sex or their who they're sleeping with it's it's an individual matter and that, that is when race relations and gender relations and improved that is, is when male homosexuality stopped being illegal when it became uh, both illegal and frowned upon to be sexist or racist and and yeah there's a huge huge jump forward but when the, the the civil rights movement started to see sort of diminishing returns when the main legal battles had been won then it's just a matter of addressing discourses addressing um, attitudes so postmodernism was good for this but the problem with postmodernism is that it reconstructs those divisions we're seeing again the idea that science and reason belong to white western people and that uh, everybody else has traditional and cultural beliefs but now they must be respected they must be put on a, 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 a same level. We're seeing that women, again, are emotional and irrational, while, while men are scientific and, and rational, and we, and we need to appreciate women's uh, ways of knowing things. And for, yeah, for people like us, for, for liberals who, who believe in the individual, this does feel incredibly insulting, but it, it's important to remember that isn't what they're trying to do. They've gone back to that epistemology where different knowledges belong to different people and they're just trying to weight it differently i we think that that is a terrible idea and it's it's likely to yes take us back okay again like i haven't read Foucault. i've you know listened to people talk about him like you can find old clips and you know like green film talking and stuff now at least he acknowledged marxism he acknowledged the enlightenment he was speaking out against things like that, so he knew the history. It seems to me, like, I don't know about D'Angelo or, or you know, any of the other people. Um, I'm just starting to read Crenshaw right now. I, but the students, anyways, don't seem to have gone back and read the history. It's like, oh, we want to speak out against this. Like, uh, I saw, you know, like, decolonize the classics. There's too many old white men. And, you know, the foundation of what they started, right? I mean, if it wasn't for all the stuff that came before it, they couldn't have something to deconstruct. They're... Even if they're attacking it, it is kind of, I don't want to say rooted in, but it's, it needs that foundation. You need something to attack. But it's like they're not, they haven't gone back and see how it, that's progressed to where they come from. Because if you get rid of all that, if you get rid of everything from the past, all your stuff is nonsense now. Like all your education, everything, you're saying, oh, we, we attack this. But if you destroyed it all, in context, your writing has no meaning. Like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's kind of like they're, they're doing something that's going to destroy themselves. Yes, I mean, I, I think I think that's true. In on a kind of uh, practical level, this this really is quite ahistorical. I mean, Foucault he was looking at history, and and his both most um, uh, you know he can be summarised really as as oppression doesn't go away; it just manifests in different ways at different times. And so he's looking at how and why. And then, um, so we, he, I, I think I can't remember where, so it might even be apocryphal. He was the one who said that uh, uh, the West is, is the worst and most barbaric system ever. And that, that he was talking then about secular liberal democracy. So there's this, there is this 
idea that things haven't improved we've just got used to seeing what's happening as normal and we could actually you know pe people who lived in the medieval period where, where women didn't have rights and um, they persecuted the jews didn't know that they were doing anything wrong and so they imagine that we are still living in a society like that and we just just don't actually see it unless we are you know as as the term comes which i think is about african-american woke but it is like um, enlightenment it's the ability to see these um, systems and discourses that other people can't see and so if you try to talk to people like this if you point out that poverty has decreased so much all over the world that um, that women's rights that LGBT rights that racial equality that attitudes have improved that that we're we're just doing so well with things like life expectancy and um and child mortality, obviously climate change is a, is a whole different ballgame, but, you know, the, trying to get them to understand the idea of progress is a real, um, is a real problem. And it's, it's quite explicit. I don't know if you've, you've read any of, of Derek Bell, no. the um, uh, critical race theorist. So his central thesis is, yeah, um, interest convergence is the thing that that um, is is important here. His central thesis is that thing. It's a myth that uh, race relations have improved is a myth, and it it hasn't actually happened. We've just um, changed things, uh, changed the way we're we're doing racism, and that that's that's something that's being passed down and and really taken as a, as an article of faith. Ah, <laughs> oh, okay. This stuff is, I mean, I sit here and talk, but you brought up epistemology. I can't even pronounce the word. I know what it means. Epistemology. Now, mm. if you want to go in a bit in that, because, I mean, there's a way to look at you know, the, how that comes out in faith, how it comes out in you know, the Enlightenment tradition, how it comes out in here. So if you want to go into a bit, because I, like I said, I have trouble pronouncing it. I kind of know what it means, but I won't be able to explain it properly. <laughs> Yeah, I think it, uh, just uh, thinking of um, of epistemology as as knowledge systems, that's that's probably clearer. I keep getting told off by the team for using the word epistemology because it, you know, it, it people won't. It doesn't stay in people's minds. Apparently, it, you know, even when they've read it, the definition a few times, it just slips out. So I have to try and stop saying it again. If okay, so think very very simplistically, and and this is where I'll annoy academics who will um, say this is a black and white thing, but. No, so if if we have a pre-modern epistemology, modern epistemology, and postmodern epistemology, so in the pre-modern epistemology, it essentially came down to divine revelation. So what was known was the correct interpretation of um, holy texts and um, authority as set up by religious uh, leaders. So that that's this. Um, you know, there was a lot of criticism of of reason, of relying on your own reason, and of course, of course, people were still um, using empirical methods. Nearly everybody was a farmer; they would have died if they hadn't. But over overarching everything was the idea that ultimate knowledge came from God. Then, in the secular um, period, which um, in the West often was with the um, started with the Reformation, when people began to be able to read their, their Bibles themselves. They were allowed to question, they were allowed to challenge. And at the same time, the Renaissance came in and um, they were looking at, at different types of knowledge, particularly from ancient Greece. And then, so we gathered slowly the idea that knowledge is something that comes from evidence and reason. And this did become quite dogmatic. There was quite a lot of overconfidence during um, the Enlightenment and the Age of Science that, that we could just access everything straightforwardly. And there wasn't um, the kind of introspection into, well, how, how, what assumptions are you starting with? So when the postmodernists came up and pointed this out, that, that was a valid thing. That, that was important. But science had actually been doing this itself. So we have in the modern period the epistemology of, um, of of reason, of evidence. Then in the postmodern times, that's begun to be challenged again. The argument was, particularly from people like um, Francois Lyotard, that we need to be sceptical of these meta-narratives, these big overarching stories. So he criticised Marxism and Christianity, but also science and the very idea of progress. So we've got another epistemology now where knowledge comes from small local groups. It's got much more 
um, refined into uh, racial and sort of sexual boundaries now. But at, at that point, the idea that we needed little local knowledges and that these produced the whole altogether, people coming things from a different angle, standpoint, epistemology, as a white woman, I know this. That That's what's been, been gathering steam and really pushing back and threatening the idea of, of science and evidence and reason as the way to decide what's true. Yeah. Um, okay, thank you. Because I wanted to touch on something like, on this right now, which was... A long time. <laughs> yeah. No, it's fine. It's Because like I said, I, I have an understanding of it, but if I tried to explain it, I would I'd make a dog's breakfast of it. But let's just... Because something you mentioned, and it was I, I wrote something very... I'm a, I'm a horrible writer. 20 years of technical writing has left my prose absolute crap. But... I was trying to do a thing on free speech, but doing it because everyone talks and, and, and you know, my right to speak, your right to speak, I think it's paramount, but no one really mentions the other side of it, which is you're, if let's say, hey, I want to go see you speak and you know, like what happened to you guys at Portland state and they pulled out the mic and all that and they ran out. Okay. Mm -hmm. You're denying my right to listen or my right to read. And I think that the audience's right is, greater than the speaker's right because okay going back to the milton thing like you don't give me the liberty to know to utter and to argue if you don't know that utterance and that argumentation is just garbage like if there's no knowing the rest of it might as well be sheep bleeding right because there's there's nothing coming out of there and so i don't know maybe when like you know ben shapiro goes to speak somewhere and they cancel him instead of the audience freaking out about ben shapiro's rights being taken away they should argue about their rights being taken away. Like, again, someone is deciding what you can know and what you can't. And I don't know, for me, that's the most basic thing. Like, why don't we, why aren't you arguing about, the, you know, why aren't people who are pissed off about it arguing from that basis? Like, I'll give you a couple of quick examples and I'll let you, uh, uh, Renoir is no, you know, was a misogynistic, it was misogynistic or something like that. We have to take away, take out all his paintings. Last year, there was some gallery in London that took off, some, you know, post-Renaissance paintings because they had some naked women in there. You're going to offend some people. Re Earlier this year, some artist pulled uh, a painting that he'd done because Muslims were offended and he didn't want that in the gallery. 2015, the Passions for Freedom uh, Festival in London, they didn't play, they didn't portray, they didn't want the, some pictures put, put in there because it was making, they were making fun of ISIS in a way and they didn't want any danger. So it's like, we're being told what we are fit, what we can consume ourselves. And like, like, I think we should start speaking out from that. Not, not, okay. You're taking away Helen's right to speak when you don't allow her to speak at this conference. Yes, we are. And that's wrong, but we're taking away the audience's right to hear her and judge for herself, a judge for ourselves. You know, like, mm. that, like I think maybe we should start going from that end. Like get, get the audience pissed off, get the general population pissed off that we are taking something away from you. Like you are being denied mm. something that you have the right to choose. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. It, it does come down much more to the right to listen than the right to speak. Because, you know, activists will often say to us, nobody has the right to an audience. And the point there is that if this person had an audience and you are preventing them from hearing them, that, that is what we're complaining about. We're not complaining if somebody isn't interesting enough to have an audience that's you know it, it's yeah it's not getting in the way it's not um not disrupting and preventing people from hearing ideas that they want to hear and i when i, I found this at that particular um conference that you were you were talking about the attempts to to re to prevent people from hearing us were really really powerful Okay, good. Yeah, first of all, we, we were told that people had bought all the, the, were buying the tickets and they weren't tending to turn up. So the organisers um, planned to have lots of uh, tickets on the day. People would, would queue up and then when there were spaces, they'd let them in. So then the plan changed that they were going to turn up, but they were going to have headphones on and they were going to do, um, they were going to study while listening to music so that people couldn't hear us there was sufficient interest in the talk for it to move to a bigger um bigger room but the police said that this couldn't happen because they didn't have the security to keep 
everybody safe and there had been legitimate threats including anything from from soiled um diapers to grenades so yeah that this was i i, I think I think that you're right because it wasn't really about our right to speak. We could have done that. We could have gone and sat in our living room and done that. It was about people's right to hear what we had to say and then to argue with us if they wanted to. And that, that was how Brett um, Weinstein introduced us. He said that he mentioned these plans that, that we knew about for people to either walk out or to uh, have headphones on. And he asked people not to do that if they disagreed ask questions they would be prioritized and obviously that that didn't work <laughs> okay i i don't know if this would work or uh, maybe i'm just being really naive so let's say i'm inviting you to come speak at a university you know like i, I work at a university i want how long to come speak about this stuff now if there's protests if i said to them okay you know what you don't like what helen's saying you disagree with her why don't you invite another speaker the next night to rebut what she's saying, and then you know they could have a an hour long debate. Like let give the per like let, the Helen spoke for forty five minutes. We'll give this person forty five minutes the next night to rebut anything that she said, and then they can sit and discuss it for an hour. And you guys will be better for it. Like would they even go for that, or would they just say nope? Helen speaking is pure evil, and it's gonna kill us in some way, and we don't want to. We don't even want to engage in that. Like. Like, is there any room to budge or anything? I, I think within individuals there there is. Because what is coming up against each other is the idea of the marketplace of ideas where ideas do battle against each other versus the idea of dominant and marginalised discourses in which some discourses take um, control over others. So from, a, from the perspective of the kind of activists, if there were two people on a stage um, arguing what would happen was that the person who is speaking into the dominant discourse would have more credibility and they would be perceived as as winning and they would be abusing and exploiting the other person with a marginalised opinion. So I think, you know, I don't think we, we should catastrophize and, and think that every activist um, or academic is buying completely into this shut everything down, don't allow um, debate thing. But I, I think... You know, I, I'm sure that there are. Well, I know that there are a lot of people who are not there yet who see some value in the idea of, of discourses and, and power structures, but they're not opposed to um, actually discussing ideas. So I think we just have to keep contrasting these things. And, and people like you, and people like me, who can say, I don't want to, as a woman, as a brown person, as whatever, I don't want to be told what I can and can't hear how I am and I'm not to read things. I want to be seen as an individual. I want my ideas to stand on their merit. Because so many people are... Um, oh, I've forgotten what I was going to say now. <laughs> well, I don't... But, yeah, I mean, like, again, this is maybe I'm just being... A, I realise that it's not... It's, it's individual, and I, I don't want to do the same thing that you know, what I'm opposed to. Individual people, when you talk to them, you can have, you know, for the most part, you can have a, a reasonable conversation. Uh, sometimes they get a little too heated and, uh, but whatever. Like I said, you can have a reasonable conversation. Now, I noticed this with the military, especially the American military, because it's really bizarre. So if you had three people, if you had two people from the American military, one from the Deep South and one from New York City, they would speak to each other in their native accents. If you had a third military person to that mix who came from, let's say, California, which had you know, another accent, like speech accent from that part of the country, they would pick up this military patois that there was a, a specific military accent and they would all start speaking like that. Or if I saw a Canadian soldier or a British soldier, the way they took off their berets, wrapped it up, and they had a little loop that they would put the beret in. <coughs> now... If there was three or more together, they would all do it almost in unison in the exact same way as they were walking into a building. If they were individual, they might roll it up like that, but put it in a pocket beside that little loop instead of putting it in that little loop. There was little individualities. But it's like, yeah, you get this, get, you know, more than three together, and it's just this collective mob think, and like, you know, it's like an inverse proportion. The bigger the mob, the smaller the IQ. Like, it's... <sighs> 
I, I think, yeah, but an, an awful lot of it does come down to our need to belong and our need to be part part of the, of something, and that, that that shouldn't be underestimated when it we talk about virtue signalling uh, contemptuously. But this is what we do as as humans. This this is what we do. We signal to each other. Um, that we are part of the same team, that we are good people, that we are trustworthy people. And that isn't going away. But, yeah, it, it is – I think this is what I've, I've been arguing recently because, I mean, a lot of the, the people leading this, the academics, they're, you know, they're, they're um, in their 50s or 40s. It's not a youth movement exactly, but the people who are buying into it and sort of uh, pressuring on it quite simplistically and who could be affected for the long term are young people. So I think one of the best things um, we can do is make make social justice uncool, just to show you. <laughs> it isn't new. It isn't radical. Mm-hmm. It's been going on for about 50 years. It's... Um, it, it's not it's not ethical it's not reasonable but the problem with making it dangerous and edgy and, and radical is that it does appeal to people who want to change the world i think we need to be much more confident in laughing at it and saying that it's silly yeah uh, and, but that's just it okay <laughs> like the religious aspect you know ayatollah khomeini you know famously said that there is no humor in islam but there's no humor in these people either i mean it's like humor is a sin I, I mean, like, I don't know. Maybe I'm just too too much of it. And, but I, 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 again, I like to poke fun. I mean, you see what I do on Twitter. I, I don't do much except for make snarky comments. You know, like that's you're, you're you're quite good at that. Yes. <laughs> but I mean, if you can't have, if life is not about enjoying yourself a little bit, I mean, yes, there are horrible things, there's harmful things, and you want to make you know the world a better place. Even if it's just locally, but like if you're not having fun, what's the point? <laughs> well, you you obviously are just a, a horrible sinner who doesn't recognise how terrible the world is, and uh, and isn't uh, committed to to fixing it, Obed. So I, I think um, yeah, yeah, you you should reflect on that. <laughs> yeah, but that's I don't know. I mean, like I said, maybe I you know I'm, I'm too old for this. It's just I. I I don't like to think I am. Um, I know you, like, I don't want to keep you too, too long because I don't want to use you know, mm-hmm. all your time, but I, I know you're coming out with that book and, you know, you, you've been famously editing on Twitter. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that, that, that is um, what, what we're trying to do. We're, we're trying to take people into um, a different world and a different language and get them to explain, get, get them to understand how it all works because people are responding um, but they're they're not speaking in the in their economy. So they will say things as we've just been saying. You know, you've got to be able to have humour. You've got to see people as individuals. You've, you know, we need to be able to talk about things and compare ideas. So they are speaking back to social justice ideas with universal liberal ideas. And I th- it, it will work a lot better if they understand how the social justice ideas work. So our book starts with the original postmodernists in the late 60s. Then it, it describes the shift that happened in the late 80s. It goes through the different kinds of, um, of theories and studies and then looks at what's happened in the last um, in the last sort of 10 years nearly before looking at how this is impacting society and also suggesting what we should do about it. So it's... It's kind of intended to be this a sort of a really clear guide. You should be able to read this and understand it if you have no background at all in um, in any of this kind of theory, and if you don't have a, a higher education. You know, it, you just need to be an, an engaged person who's who's willing to to read thoughtfully, and and you should get it at the end of it. <laughs> okay, I'm going to play. Oh, I don't even want to call it devil's advocate. But did you get any pushback from anyone, not from the you know, the, the social justice postmodern side of it, but from you know the the as Rauch put it, the the, the Rauch, I don't know how to pronounce his name, the liberal science side of it, saying if you put this out there, you might then in turn indoctrinate some other people into that way of thinking. Like, was there any kind of trepidation from your colleagues, or maybe even yourself? Like, if I introduce this to people. Will they then buy into this nonsense instead of seeing it for the nonsense that it is, or the nonsense that you see it? You know, like, like, 
like looking like kind of like because you're so immersed in it, did you start, you know, because I heard Jim say it like after doing this for a year, every time I look at something, I problematize it. So like, did you problematize yeah. your own work <laughs> because you were so engrossed in this stuff? <laughs> I did. I mean, the problem when we were writing these, I just get completely into the zone and I produce a paper which is um, just indistinguishable and is uh, is just I don't mean it, but I'm, I'm in there. So I then needed um, Jim to add, you know, sort of weird statistics and then Peter for humor and, you know, to do something like that. So, yeah, I'm not worried about that with the book because I think that we're demystifying it and that is... It doesn't make it attractive. If you actually break it down to the bare bones, you're getting a kind of a factual account. What are the beliefs? There's a belief that language, that power is a construct of language, that society is, is done like this. So we're letting people see what it is and we're letting them see how it manifests within various um, theories. I think it would be very improbable for somebody to read the book and come away thinking, well, this is all great. It's a bit like when, um, you know, you if you read, if you didn't know anything about Christianity, but you read The God Delusion, you might end up knowing a lot more about Christianity, but you wouldn't be more likely to become a Christian, if you, if you see what I mean. Yeah, no, I, I get that. I mean, that, <laughs> it hadn't occurred to me that, that people could find the idea attractive by reading our book, but oh, no, I, look, I, I, it's possible. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm actually actually reading your book, and I hope more people. I hope a lot of people read it. But it was just like I said, it was just something popped in my head that you might have some academics who are opposed to this stuff, afraid that introducing it to a larger population, then you have a larger population base that might buy into it. Mm -hmm. okay, right after the Christchurch shooting, right, and then mm -hmm. about, about a month later it was the the shooting in, in Sri Lanka. I had friends of mine who are you know I'm I'm going to be fifty in about four weeks. Uh, you know, so they're roughly the same age as I am, you know, give or take a year or two. And after the Christchurch shooting on your social media pages was this stuff that, you know, uh, there's a little pyramid that said whiteness at the bottom and then white supremacy at the top. And it leads you from whiteness to white supremacy. And they're saying Christchurch is because of whiteness, blah, 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 blah. I'm a white person. I need to own up to this. And then when the, the Sri Lanka shooting happened, and I, I spoke to them privately because they're friends of mine and I don't want to get into arguments on Facebook or whatever with them. I said, okay, now let's talk about Muslimness. Okay, this was a Muslim person who went into a, a bunch of churches on, or went into a church on Easter Sunday, shot Christians. Let's talk about Muslimness. And they didn't even want to, no, no, we can't discuss that. It's whiteness. Like, they, they, you know, they can't see, and I was being, I wasn't being serious. I was just trying to show them the ridiculousness of their, their thought pattern. But they don't want to see that. Like they, they, it's, it's only whiteness. And these people, are, they're not university. They haven't been exposed to this, but they hear it somewhere and it makes sense. Mm. It, it, it is in the water that, that, that we swim in. I'm, I think you've just inspired me as you were talking. I'm going to to write a thing, I think, where I contrast these these ideas because there's inconsistencies that we keep talking back to each other I, I think that could be clarified quite well by just sort of separating them out the individual versus the group but I, I'm very glad that you brought up this idea of of the pyramid because that is really one of the, the most dangerous thing about this idea of discourses I think because the way that they're saying so if you just have um whiteness um at the bottom which you know, that might be this belief in individuality, meritocracy and things. You see those kind of things in, in whiteness. And then at the top you have, you know, genocidal white supremacy. The reason that these things are um, seen as a pyramid or a scale is because they're seen as talking into the same discourse of someone who says, I, I don't see colour, is um, in the same ballpark as someone who says um, black people are inferior and, and should be slaves or something, something awful. So they're, they're trying to address it. This is the way that they are seeing a scale of things. Whereas for um, liberals like us, there isn't this scale. There is a cutoff point. You know, there, there is um, different ideas and then there is racism. There is speech and then there is action. So, we're seeing things much more sort of clearly, whereas 
this is they they are seeing things as, as tied so much into a whole framework of discourses this is why you can go online and say something and then have someone respond to something completely different it's because they are have just slotted you within a discourse and they are going to reply to any part of it the most extreme example of this i ever saw was um when i said that i didn't believe that the wage gap was much influenced by men doing more dangerous jobs and someone immediately came in and accused me of islamophilia because they positioned me as um a feminist um who was criticizing uh, i was i was arguing with with a men's rights activist and so suddenly i was just put in this framework of um a certain set of ideas and people will people will just argue with any of them i i did this once and at the most uh, experience that that made made me think quite a lot i was talking to a young black guy who was saying that um racism is privilege and power and i started speaking to him um with the assumption that he bought into the whole sort of social justice things and very swiftly he made it clear to me that he didn't he was he was a um, he was one of the new atheists he was about science and reason he thought all that was ridiculous so he had one idea and i had had just sort of uh, taken it and run and so I, I that sort of made me think um quite a lot we, we you know we see patterns and quite often they work that's why we've evolved to do that we see one thing in a person and we think all these other things connect but i think we need to put some effort into into not doing that and it's really getting hugely out of hand now and it all comes down to this scale idea this pyramid yeah. i mean okay like also with my friends i tried doing the uh, like they famously on the you know, when uh, Ben Affleck attacked Sam Harris as, uh, as being gross and racist. And Sam was talking about the concentric circles of Islam, and at the center you have like jihad, so like ISIS and Al Qaeda, and then you work your way out. So when they were talking about this, you know, when when the the, the, the shootings in Sri Lanka happened, I would bring up this Muslimist thing. I said, look, you know, you've got at the center of Islam, you've got ISIS. If you go a little bit outside of that, you'll have a group like the Muslim Brotherhood. You go a little bit outside of that, you'll have conservative. And so I started doing that with white people, right? I said, okay, you know, at the very, very center, you have the Christchurch shooter and groups like that. Then you go outside a little bit, you might have like the uh, the Christian right who want to use politics. They're not kind of you know, getting into violence yet or something like that. Uh, you know, then then you'll have like conservative white people who might have, some, and they didn't want to hear that. They, they, they didn't want to, for them, me talking about Islam that way that, Islam is all good and all pure, and white people are just all evil. And I'm just like, I don't know. I, maybe I'm bad at trying to convince them of that. I have no idea. But I just, I was trying any way to let them show that what they were saying was just as horrible as me saying that one terrorist attack is all Muslims doing that. Yeah, th this is this is why I, I really think we we need to look at things because. This is what I keep seeing liberals do, and they're absolutely right to do that. They're pushing back, saying this isn't consistent. Look, if I said that about black people, about women, you'd see the problem with it. But the underlying assumption with that is that they are being hypocritical because they believe in is that there are systems of power and privilege that some people have been elevated and some have been cast down and we need to switch that around now so that there are strong principles there but they aren't about treating people consistently that they're they're about redressing imbalances so you can punch up but not down you can't be racist to white people you can't be sexist to men it's a completely different framework and it, it, you system because they know they're not that's not that's not how it works and i think what we need to do is just break that down right at the beginning rather than trying to follow them down their rabbit holes or um, talk past each other. Just say right at the very beginning, I don't share your premise at X, you know, that only white people can be racist, that knowledge is tied to identity, whatever it is, spell it out at the beginning. I don't share that. And then if they come back with assertions to it, refer them back to it saying, remember, I'm not coming from this premise. I don't accept your premise. I'm coming from this one. And it will stop, I hope, well-meaning liberals from trying to communicate but going with a framework they don't accept. But yeah. the, um, the, the thing you put through um, for 
um, the concentric circles of Islam. I, I think that's a little bit worrying as well. I think that works in the same way as, as a pyramid does, because I wouldn't um, go along with the idea that, you know, at the centre of Islam is ISIS and then everybody else is getting to being milder th forms of ISIS. I don't think that a liberal Muslim um, who's, uh, you know, supporting um, okay, no, LGBT... No. <laughs> he, he wasn't. He wasn't saying that this is how it grows out. He was just saying, okay, if you want to look at it, the very the people who follow it very literally and very fundamentally and don't have no nuance, have no nothing, are just taking the worst part of it, right, and only mm. going with that. He was trying to. He was trying to just. Like, he was trying to differentiate between between what is ISIS. What is some a group like the Muslim Brotherhood for the most part wants to use politics, right? Yeah. So, so I, I mean, none of these things are perfect, but he was just trying to show that okay, this is Islam, this whole circle, this very very small core of it is violent mm. and terrorist, and that's the problem. With but if you go a little bit further out, you know these people might turn a blind eye to when the violence happens. You know, and then if you go a little bit further out, these people might turn a blind eye to the people who are turning a blind eye to the violence. You know, like that kind of thing. Like, I know it's not perfect, and I know no analogy like that will ever be perfect. But I was just trying to compare the two, like saying there is a, a difference here. Um, but anyways, on that, like I said, I don't want to keep you too, too long because you, know, yeah. you, you have more important things to do than jabber with me. So I'll let you uh, have the last have word tea if you want me. to talk about anything that's coming up. But I don't think there's anything I... I'm not. No, okay. So, well, thank you very much, and thank you very much for listening. Yeah, and I shall see you on Twitter where you will be polite about my cooking. <laughs> well, maybe now, not. now that we have this personal bond, <laughs> that I'm sure all that insulting will cease. Okay, like I said, I kid, I kid because I love Helen. <laughs>